so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics, as well as overseeing the Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Matthew Martins to talk about his new book entitled Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal from Crossway. Today, we discuss the nature of justice in the Christian life and how Christians can think about criminal justice reform through a biblical lens. Matt is a trial lawyer and partner at an international law firm in Washington, D.C. He earned his JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law and a Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. He spent the majority of his 25-year legal career practicing criminal law both as a federal prosecutor and as a defense attorney. He served as a law clerk to Chief Justice William Rehnquist of the United States Supreme Court and also a political appointee in the Criminal Justice Division at the U.S. Justice Department. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Matt, it's really great to have you here on the Digital Public Square podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. One, because I've known you've been writing the book for a while, but then two, recently released from Crossway. It's a really excellent resource that we'll dive into today. But before we dive into it, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. One of the fun things about interviewing authors is hearing kind of a little bit of their story which is one of the ways that we kind of see and kind of ideas of how the a book is birthed in that sense is based on your background, based on your experience. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what your interest is in this particular subject? Sure. And thanks for having me on here today. Uh, really looking forward to it as well. So I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a, a Baptist pastor for 36 years in a church in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, very much a creature of the Northeast in that sense. As an adult, I went to law school in North Carolina, at the University of North Carolina. I've been a lawyer now for more than 27 years. I spent a lot of time initially as a defense lawyer, and then I went into the Justice Department during the Bush administration, both in a political position and then later on as a line attorney, and was a line federal prosecutor for nearly eight years. I've handled every type of case you can imagine from capital murder to child sex abuse material, to white collar crimes like securities fraud or tax fraud, to bank robbery, drug charges, gun trafficking. So a little bit of everything on the defense side. Early in my career, I handled 
case involving a murder and then some white collar crime, police corruption. And then I've been back on the defense side now after leaving the Justice Department for I've been on the defense side again for more than 10 years. So I've done a little bit of everything along the way. You know, there really weren't resources that I was aware of to try to think about what does it mean to be a prosecutor and or a defense lawyer as a Christian? And so it was sort of more learning by doing, which maybe isn't the best way (laughs) to learn when the stakes are so high. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about the topic, but I didn't really have any aspirations to write a book. And then in 2014, one of my pastors at the time, Isaac Adams, who's now in Birmingham, Alabama, but was at the time a pastor of mine at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, we went to dinner. This was after the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and a lot of discussion in our church, a lot of discussion in the culture at large about criminal justice issues. And Isaac, knowing that I had gone to seminary several years earlier, I have a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, which I earned while I was working as a prosecutor. And uh, Isaac encouraged me to write a book on this topic. He thought I could be helpful given my background as a prosecutor, as a defense lawyer, as somebody with a seminary degree. And I kind of shrugged it off just because I was busy. But then six, fast forward six years later, the discussion in the country is continuing, the events around George Floyd, the riots that summer. And another one of my, at that time, former pastors, Garrett Kell, encouraged me again I don't think he even knew about Isaac's encouragement, but Garrett encouraged me to write a book for many of the same reasons that Isaac had. And I was sort of like, you know, I don't know any publishers. I'm not a, a figure in evangelicalism. I've never done this. And so he and some others connected me with a couple of publishers, including Crossway. And I prepared a proposal based on an example that somebody gave me being very new to this. And I wasn't really expecting anybody to be interested in this. And it turned out that they were. And I was pleasantly surprised when Crossway was interested, both because I really have theological alignment with the folks at Crossway. And so I thought that having editors who would be very much theologically aligned with me would be helpful. It turned out to be even more so than I expected. And also, I wanted my audience to understand that I'm writing as a friend to friends. I'm not as many as I think too many critics of evangelicalism are today are writing sort of outside, throwing rocks in. And it doesn't mean that there's not a place for that. You know, we should listen to our critics from the outside. They have perspectives to bring to bear, but that's not who I was trying to be or how I was trying to write. I was I very much am trying to write to friends. And so I wanted, I thought the Crossway label would help communicate that I'm writing as, an, as, as one of the people I'm trying to talk to because I'm writing to myself in some ways. Yeah, one of the things that I enjoy about the book is that, as you kind of referenced earlier, there aren't a ton of resources on this. And one of the intriguing aspects is kind of that dual background that you have, not only in theology with the master's degree from Dallas, but then also you, you are a lawyer. And that's one of the interesting things, especially as an ethicist who kind of swims in some of these waters, is you often have trained ethicists, but they're also not sometimes trained in in law. And so sometimes you have somebody who can kind of bridge the gap a little bit, but you don't always see that. So that's something that's 
kind of unique about this book. What about kind of the book writing process? I mean, I know as an author, you kind of, we all have our little quirks and different things like that. I mean, 2014, you get the encouragement to write a book like this. You start working on it. Tell us about the book writing process, like how you worked on it. This is kind of a, a pretty massive tome. This is a really impressive work. I mean, you just open it up and it's footnote after footnote. And I love that as an academic kind of seeing the footnotes. I'm not an endnote fan at all. I love footnotes. Even though I know they can be uh, quite overwhelming to some at times, uh, to put it lightly. But tell us a little bit about the book writing process. I mean, you kind of mentioned early on you you kind of had a target word count and you went a little bit over that, to say the least, when you submitted the manuscript. So tell us a little bit about how the book came together. So again, having never done this before, I'm like, I don't know how many words it's going to be. It's going to be however many words it is when I'm done. And so... One of the publishers I talked to is like 65,000 words hard stop. And I was like, man, like that's risky for me to sign up for because I don't know whether that's how long this is going to be. And Crossway was fantastic. Justin Taylor at Crossway was like, listen, we'll just write down 65,000. And, you know, if it's good, keep writing. They were really great about that. So they were expecting, based on the contract, a, a manuscript of 65,000 words. I turned in 140,000. I had more than 20,000 words in the footnotes. And I've come to learn that people have very strong views about footnotes versus endnotes. I too like the footnotes because I just want to glance down and, and see what it is that's being cited. So again, not, not having experience as a book author, I probably followed a process that no one should follow. I know that some authors have this 500 words a day goal or 1,000 words a day or whatever it is. I had a, an outline like at a high level of the chapters that I wanted to write, and I included that in my proposal. So I had a vision for how the book should be organized, the first part being theological, the second part being the practical or the legal. And I knew what the chapters were, and I knew generally what I wanted to say in the chapters. But the way I would write is I would read a lot to really help refine my thinking about these issues. I wanted to hear from people I agreed with and from people I disagreed with around some of these topics. I wanted to do a deep dive into the law and the data around it. Again, I generally knew what that was, but I wanted to really do a deep dive. So sometimes I would write a few hundred words each day, but there were times where I wouldn't write anything for weeks. And then I would sit down on a Saturday and write an entire chapter. So it was, there was no rhyme or reason. I read 56 books during the course of writing in addition to numerous academic journal articles and cases and otherwise. So there's a lot of reading involved in it. As you noted, a lot of footnotes. I have 900 footnotes, a lot of words in those footnotes, a lot of content there that people can check if they're interested in, in going further. So I, I wrote over the course of 14 months. I had to take four months off entirely where I did no reading or writing for a because I had some work obligations the trial I was doing. So in the course of the 14 months, I took off four months in the middle. So essentially, I wrote 140,000 words in 10 months as a part-time gig, uh, you know, at nights and weekends. Yeah, that's quite daunting, quite impressive as well as I'm working on a couple of book projects myself, just knowing that each of us kind of have our own little quirks on how we write. I don't have a lot of the 500 words a day or something either. I can typically knock out pretty large chunks 
been in one sitting and then sometimes it's a little bit drier and you don't get as much, but it is what it is. As we dive into the book, though, I mean, you kind of open up and I saw many not only endorsers, but also reviews kind of highlight this kind of the money line as you open up the book is this concept, this provocative but very insightful line of justice denied is love denied. And love denied to either the crime victim or the criminally accused is justice denied. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? This idea of justice, this idea of love and some of the connections there. But what do we mean first? And one of the things I always encourage my students is I say, ask the question of what do you mean by that? Because especially when we talk about love and one of the things that from Carl Henry that's always impressed me, he said, love for another is the sum of the Christian ethic. And a lot of people agree with that, even people who don't agree with what I mean by love or even biblically defined love would say, oh, yeah, love is the center of the Christian ethic. So what do you mean by love and how does love kind of frame up as Christians how we think about justice in a broken and sin-turned world? So I'll offer a couple thoughts on that. And I'll start with this just in terms of personal devotional thought, which is I spent a year, more than a year, thinking and reading and meditating on what it means to love my neighbor. And I will tell you that that is transformative. I would encourage folks to do that. Just spend a year reading everything you can find about loving your neighbor. It really impacted how I think about other people, how I look at other people, far beyond criminal justice. And so so having spent that year, I came to that conclusion that, the, as, as you said, the center of the Christian ethic is love. Eight times in Scripture, beginning in Leviticus 19, continuing through the Gospels multiple times into Galatians, James, Romans, we see the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself affirmed that that sums up the entirety of the Old Testament law and prophets, which included criminal code, that what it means most fundamentally to follow Jesus is to love God and love our neighbors. That's not how we become Christians. That's how we act as Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian, is the conclusion I came to. And Augustine puts it really well. I think it's in On Christian Doctrine. He writes that justice is love ruling rightly or ruling well, depending on the translation. Justice is love ruling well. That justice is a manifestation of love. It is a manifestation, if it is justice, of love for neighbor. It is one way in which we love our neighbors. We do it through the sword, as Paul calls it. The use of coercive governmental force can be an act of love for neighbor. But in order to be justice, in order to be Christian justice, it must be carried out in love of neighbor. And as the parable of the Good Samaritan makes clear, we don't get to pick among the neighbors we love. Uh, the obligation to love our neighbors extends to all our neighbors. That means most easily it comes to us to love those who are criminally victimized. I was talking with my dad yesterday, and he we were just discussing this concept when I was driving into work, and he made the observation from a sermon he heard, you know, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the even the publicans and tax collectors do that, as Jesus said. You know, there's people it's easy to love. We can easily sympathize with crime victims, as we should. 
What's hard to do, but what distinguishes us as Christians is our ability to love our enemies, to love those who do us wrong, to love those who break the rules, who refuse to follow the the mandates of how our society is organized, to love the criminally accused and the criminally convicted. And so what I was trying to think about in this book is, what does that look like? So if that's true, I'm supposed to love the criminally victimized and the criminally convicted, the crime victim and the crime perpetrator. How do I do that? Is that even possible? Because aren't those in conflict? Wouldn't loving one mean not loving the other? Don't I sort of have to pick sides? And what I argue is you not only do you not have to pick sides, you can't pick sides, that our obligation is, in fact, to love them both. And we can love them both. And I try to unpack what that means, but most fundamentally what it means is to judge their cases accurately, that no one is loved by inaccurate judgments. The wrongly convicted is not loved. He's now been held responsible for something he's not responsible for and is in no position to repent because he did nothing wrong and yet is suffering harm. The criminally victimized isn't loved by inaccurate judgments because he or she is deceived, misled into believing that their wrong has been vindicated when it, uh, the wrong they've suffered has been vindicated when it has not been. The society at large isn't loved by inaccurate judgments because the wrongdoers are left at large to continue to do wrong. And this last point I think is critical. The actual wrongdoer isn't loved by a wrongful conviction because he or she, as a result of the wrongful conviction, is not convicted and thus is deprived of the corrective benefit of the law. And so most fundamentally what it means to love all of our neighbors as ourselves is to judge their cases accurately. Now, I think there's implications of that, which I unpack, but I think that's the starting point. Yeah, one of the concepts you mentioned really early on that I think I really like is obviously connecting listeners of the podcast are no uh, stranger to the double love command of love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves, which really is central as you've kind of illustrated here in the volume, how that's connecting to this concept of justice. And that rich connection, as you already noted, is seen throughout scriptures, whether it's in the prophets, whether it's in the Sermon on the Mount and more. This idea of justice, though, it's a loaded word to say the least today when we say the concept of justice, especially as that term is like, I always like to talk about social justice, but I have to be very clear about what I mean by that. What I mean when I say social justice is the social manifestation of true justice, biblically defined. But the concept of social justice has taken on such baggage as many kind of co-opt that term to push particular ideologies or particular visions of justice that's really at odds with a biblical worldview. But one of the things you do early on in the book is kind of connect this concept of eternal kind of divine judgment and justice versus this pursuit of earthly justice. There are some who say we leave this up to God. There isn't a role for the government. There isn't a role for people and kind of earthly justice. What is that relationship then between this kind of eternal justice and our pursuit of earthly justice? How do those two kind of ideas connect in a biblically defined concept of justice? So I, I would flag two key concepts here. The first is this, that as people made in the image of God, we are to reflect God. We are to image God. We are to image what he, what he is like. And in the justice realm, that means that we are to image his justice. We are in carrying out justice to reflect what God's justice is like. Secondly, though, I think an important a related concept is that all authority is God's authority. He possesses all power over the universe. And whatever authority we have is delegated authority. 
It is on loan from God. So as I said, we need to execute that justice as a reflection of his justice, because what he's giving us is only his authority to carry out justice. But what it also, when I say it's delegated, we also have to ask, what's the extent of the delegation? He hasn't given me all authority. He hasn't given earthly government all authority. He's given some authority. And that's critical because we can commit injustice by trying to execute more justice than he has delegated. And so just one example of that, taking the Old Testament, God hasn't delegated to humankind either the authority or the responsibility to address all wrongs in this life. You see that, for example, in the the command in the Old Testament that you can only punish people on the testimony of two witnesses. That means in Old Testament Israel, no authority was delegated to address one witness crimes. That was not part of the delegation to humankind. And if if you weren't a believer, that would be maddening because there are a lot of one witness crimes. And that means if, if the Israelites of the Old Testament weren't delegated the authority to address that, then that would be unaddressed if there was no God. And I think what you see in that is a call to trust that there is a God and all wrongs will be addressed, but they won't all be addressed by us. And so it's important that we not overstep the delegation, because in some ways that overstepping the delegation is a lack of faith, a lack of trust, that unlike people who have no hope in God, we do. We can take comfort in the fact that even if not everything can be resolved by us in this life, it will all be resolved. It will all be judged. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. No one will escape his judgment. There is nothing that is outside of the scope of his sight, even if it might be outside the scope of ours. Yeah, one of the things that I appreciate about this book is that you're taking a biblical approach. You're not kind of coming in with a particular party or a particular ideology per se. You're coming in saying, what does the scripture teach us about the pursuit of justice, the biblically defined justice that at times is at odds with particular kind of partisan visions of justice even? I like that because it helps us to say, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian first when we engage in these conversations? And one of the things that you do pretty early on is helping us to frame up as we've talked about this kind of idea of eternal justice and earthly justice is also the proper role of government, kind of what that delegated authority, not only to us as image bearers, but also as God has ordained the government with that particular purpose, that twofold purpose that we see in First Peter of promoting the good and restraining the evil. And that sense of help us to understand what is that proper role of earthly government in the pursuit of justice. What are some of those foundational ideas, foundational principles that should we should measure biblically, biblically measure how just a government is and where we may seek to, uh, some type of reform of saying you're really not living up to this biblical standard and the pursuit of justice, that delegated authority that you've been given by God. Yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, most fundamentally, I think the restraint is that we have to judge accurately. That means, as I said, some some wrongs we just won't be able to judge because we won't be able to, to judge them with accuracy. We won't be able to make reliable, accurate conclusions. But you see this idea of accuracy throughout Scripture. So take Romans 13, talks about the authorities have been delegated by God, the, the authority to bear the sword against evildoers, it says. 
So implicit in that is an accuracy element. To bear the sword, you have to distinguish between evildoers and not evildoers. There's no authority, at least as Romans 13 frames it, to bear the sword against non-evildoers. And so that, that frames up a question of how much does that mean that I have to run a system that's perfect? Is it permissible to, as fallible human beings, operate a justice system when I know there will be, at times, inaccurate judgments reached? That's one of the questions I try to wrestle with in the book, is how do we, how do we deal with our finitude and the, the possibility of error, given that our delegation is only to judge those who are, in fact, wrongdoers? But continuing on from the principle of accuracy— And to answer that question in part about how do we deal with our finitude is the concept of due process. The way we judge cases accurately as humans is by having a process that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence. In other words, I don't have a time machine. I don't read minds. I can't see through walls. I'm not clairvoyant. So if I'm going to pass judgment on events that occurred in the past when I was not present, We're going to have to have some process that brings forward, that surfaces the relevant evidence, but then also tests the relevant evidence, that this is inherent in achieving accuracy as humans. Now, you also kind of, I can also point to passages in scripture that talk about the idea of due process, whether it's testing two or three witnesses in the gate of the city, as it talks about in Deuteronomy 19, or he who's first in his own cause seems just, but then his neighbor comes and searches him out in Proverbs, I think it's 17. You see concepts of due process articulated in scripture, but I think it's inherent, it's derivative of the idea of accuracy because it's the only means we as as fallible people have to achieve accuracy. But even if you are striving for accuracy and you have a process, you have to have judges who are impartial. In other words, I could have a process that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence, and I could have decision makers who are not impartial and are going to decide cases not based on facts, but based on personalities. And so... You have to have impartiality to protect accuracy, even if you have a good process in place. And then accuracy also requires that you have proportionality in sentencing, because we have to both speak accurately about who committed the wrong, but then we also have to speak accurately about how wrong the wrong was. Not every wrong is of equal severity, and so we could rightly identify a wrongdoer and then inaccurately punish them by saying their their wrong was either more severe than it actually is or less severe than it actually is. Someone could, to use Old Testament terms, have taken an eye, and we rightly identify that they took an eye, but then we inaccurately take two of their eyes, thus miscommunicating the severity of their wrong. And so this idea of proportionality is truth-speaking with regard to the severity of the wrong. It's accuracy as to how wrong the wrong was. And then lastly... I think derivative of the principle of accuracy is the principle of accountability, that the state itself can be a wrongdoer, that the authorities themselves can be wrongdoers in executing justice. And so speaking accurately requires speaking accurately, not only about the wrongs of the governed, but also about the wrongs of the governors and speaking accurately and punishing appropriately when those charged with executing justice themselves commit injustice. One thing I was really pleased to see kind of discussion of in the book um, is this question of who is my neighbor? You see this in Luke 10. I mean, you've already referenced this concept a little bit early on, but Luke 10, you have this question of who is my neighbor, which is really getting into this question kind of philosophically defined of moral proximity, moral distance. 
uh, which is a really fascinating concept when we start to think about how we go about pursuing justice in a society, what's our responsibility as individuals or as a society. Can you help us first to define what we mean by this concept of moral distance or moral proximity? And then second, how does that affect the way that we pursue justice as Christians? And I'll say a deeply, quote, connected, and I put that in air quotes to say we're deeply connected technologically, but we're often very isolated and very tribalized as well as a society. So what do we mean by this concept of moral proximity and moral distance? And what kind of bearing does that have on justice, especially as we think about while we are very connected, we're also not like, I don't know people across the nation as well. And so do I feel that I have less because of that distance? Do I have less of a responsibility to pursue justice in a particular case? Help us to think through some of those contours of that moral distance and moral proximity question. Yeah. So again, I go back to Augustine in his work on Christian doctrine. He says, all men are to be loved equally, but since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special regard to those who, by the accidents of time or place or circumstances, are brought into closer connection with you. So he's capturing this idea that we are finite. We're not entitled to to pick and choose who we love, but those situations where we can act on that love will be influenced by who our lives intersect with. And you see that he, what he's capturing is really what you see in Luke 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan, that the Good Samaritan didn't get to pick and choose and say, well, you know, I'm a Samaritan and he's a Jew and, and we don't like each other in this culture, so I'm not going to help. What we see him doing is crossing that boundary because his life intersected with someone who was in need. He doesn't help someone who he's entirely unaware of across town or across the country because he's finite. He can only address the situations that his life intersects with. And that's what Augustine's getting at it on Christian doctrine, which is we are to love everyone, meaning to will and desire the good of all without regard to their station in life or their ethnicity or their location or our physical or relational proximity to them. But my ability to act on that differs by circumstances. So I have an obligation to love all of your listeners here today, but my ability to act on that is limited. I desire the good of everyone who's on this, uh, who's listening to this podcast, but I don't even know who they are. Now, maybe at some point in my life, my life will intersect with them and I'll have opportunity to do them good. But my ability and thus my obligation to them is different than my obligation to my wife because I'm related to her. I've taken on obligations willingly to her, but my obligation to my wife actually could be less at any given moment than to my my obligation to someone who sits in the office next to me because I'm physically close to them and there may be an urgent need that arises where I am uniquely position to help because I'm right here. And so I may have no family relation to them, but I have a physical proximity to them that creates burdens. And so this idea of physical proximity is helping us sort out how do I decide when and where I have to act. And it's based on, as Augustine explains, your relationship with that person, your physical proximity to that person, and the need that person faces, how severe it is at any given moment. And it's a kind of a sliding scale, a balancing test where we're trying to work out when and how we should intervene with the limited resources and abilities we have. And what I argue in the book is that a democratic republic 
like the United States, creates moral proximity between us and the people on whom the justice system operates, meaning I have more of a relationship with people that the justice system operates on in a democratic republic because of my election of the people who carry out justice and my ability to control them. That creates a moral proximity that is lessened in, for example, a monarchy. In a monarchy, I mean, maybe you can speak against what the king is doing if it doesn't get you killed, but you can't throw him out of office other than through violent insurrection. And I may have, in a monarchy, I had no role in putting the king there. But in a democratic republic, I put the district attorney in office. He's acting or she's acting for me. And that creates moral proximity now between me and the person that elected district attorney operates against. And having handed that person the sword, to use biblical language, I have an obligation to now monitor whether they're carrying it out, whether they're wielding it in accordance with justice. And if they're not, my moral proximity of voting creates an obligation for me to try to take the sword back. And so I see a greater Christian obligation to be an active voter on criminal justice in a democratic republic than would exist in a monarchy where you don't have as much say. Literally, those author- the authorities are carrying a sword we handed them. Well, as we kind of round out our conversation here, obviously, I'm going to ask you kind of a big question. This is something you've written about extensively. You have an entire chapter devoted to here as well. One of the kind of big questions that you have changed your mind on, as you say, throughout your life is this question of the death penalty and capital punishment, kind of a bomb for the end of our conversation here, kind of open up a can of worms a little bit. But I wanted to talk about this because I think it's really important for Christians to be thinking about these questions. I think it's easy for some of us to assume, well, yes, the death penalty is just. Do we see it in Scripture? We should execute that type of justice. That is uh, that delegated authority that we've already spoken to, given to the government. Obviously, we want due process, etc. But then also knowing that in theory, it can be a, a good biblical idea, but then in practice, we see some maybe unjust ways that it's been executed or some ways that it's been implemented in a broken world. So help us to understand a little bit about some of the broad contours of the debate. I know that many Christians disagree on this question, and we don't always see eye to eye in the pursuit of this biblically defined justice. But help us to understand a little bit of the ethics of kind of capital punishment, and even where you've kind of changed your mind a little bit over the years, and how we go about executing proper justice in a society on something as severe as the death penalty. What I would say on that is this. You have to answer not only, as a Christian, you have to answer not only, is it authorized, but under what conditions is it authorized, right? This is back to what I, what I said earlier. What's the extent of the delegation? You can't just say, Genesis 9, 6, he who sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. You can't just say, Romans 13, we can bear the sword and swords are instruments of death. What I say to folks is keep reading. There's more about the death penalty in scripture. So it's not that I'm arguing that the more nullifies what I think are clear commands or clear authorizations to execute people who commit certain crimes. What I'm saying is scripture puts conditions or parameters around that, and we're as much bound by the parameters as we are by the the authorization to carry out that particular form of punishment. In other words, you could carry out an execution 
and you could do it unjustly contrary to scripture because you didn't you didn't stay within the parameters you could carry it out for a crime for which i don't believe it would be authorized though we haven't been delegated the authority to do it i've gotten into some twitter disputes with people over this topic about whether people say execute all drug dealers and i'm like you got to tell me where god delegated that authority to you the death penalty is in scripture but you got to tell me where you got the authority to do it for drug dealers now maybe you can maybe you can make an argument i'm not saying you can't but you got to make the argument you can't just say well i'd like to execute drug dealers because i think they're really bad listen i think they're really bad too i spent a lot of time prosecuting them as a prosecutor but that doesn't mean really bad doesn't equate to divine delegation to execute them or if it does you got to make that argument you got to draw the connection show me your homework And what I'm arguing with regard to the death penalty is that in principle, I accept that God has delegated that to us. There's a man on death row today in Terre Haute, Indiana, because of me, in part because of me. I was part of the prosecution team. I'm not arguing against the permissibility and principle of the death penalty. What I'm arguing is that there's keep reading. There's parameters around it. And among the parameters are what I discussed before, impartiality. And accuracy. We have to judge and condemn people to death if we're going to do that accurately, and we must do it impartially. And here's here's where the problem arises with the American system of capital punishment. Since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1972, what's called the modern era of the death penalty, about 8,950 people have been sentenced to death in the United States. Two percent of them were subsequently exonerated as innocent, 2%. Those are the ones we know about. Statistical modeling that's looked at the how long it takes for an exoneration to occur, looks at the fact that some people die or, or maybe their convictions are reversed for other reasons, illegal technicalities. And so they never got to the question of innocence. So there's been this modeling that's sort of taken into account all those variables. And this modeling was, was done by five researchers published by the National Academy of Sciences and estimates that probably 4% of people condemned to death are innocent. And what I say to folks is, you know, would you get on an elevator that safely went up and down 96% of the time? Would you get on an airplane that safely made across country 98% of the time? And yet we're boarding our fellow citizens onto a death penalty system with that degree of inaccuracy. And again, you have to make an argument, given that the authority to bear the sword is to bear the sword against evildoers, you've got to answer the question, what authority, what divine authority do we have to operate a system that operates with that degree of inaccuracy? The second thing I point to with regard to impartiality is the degree to which we know as a statistical fact that race infects the administration of the death penalty in the United States. So the most comprehensive study ever done on this was by a guy named David Baldus, a University of Iowa law professor. And Baldus did a review of a thousand death penalty cases in Georgia, a stratified sample that they then coded for numerous variables, hundreds of variables in an effort to determine as a statistical matter, what is the factor that's bearing on the decision to impose the death sentence. And after doing a regression analysis, controlling for all those variables, what they concluded is that the race of the victim is determinative of the administration of the death penalty, the imposition of a death sentence in the United States. To put a finer point on it, you are statistically more likely to be sentenced to death for killing a white person than for killing a black person. 
And just to put an anecdote on that, in September of 1991, Donald Gaskins was executed by the state of South Carolina. He was a serial killer. And his execution in September of 1991 made headlines nationwide, but not because he was a serial killer put to death, but because he was the first person in the United States in 47 years who was a white person executed for killing a black person. 47 years since 1944, we had not had a white person executed for killing a black person. 1,700 executions during that time not a single white person executed for killing a black person. The reality is that the way we have administered the death penalty in the United States is not not impartial when it comes to race. And again, I ask people, what authority do we have delegated from God to administer a system of capital punishment that is deciding who lives and dies based in part on race and not just based on the crime committed? And so, so where I come out on that is having been confronted by those facts over the course of my career, I say that I oppose capital punishment as administered in the United States. I don't oppose it in principle, but I think every Christian should oppose a system with the rate of inaccuracy that we have and with with the prevalence of racial bias that our system has. I think every Christian should oppose that. That doesn't mean you have to oppose capital punishment, but we should speak against those evils of judging inaccurately and with partiality. Yeah, there's obviously so much that can and should be unpacked, um, even in kind of what you did there. But I recommend listeners to check out that chapter, especially obviously the whole book, but that chapter especially, because that is a question that we, I pose to my ethics students here at Boyce College. We have some good debate and good conversation over, and I think it's something that we should have more conversation over. That's one of the things that I really love is kind of doing, living out the Christian life, this concept of discipleship and ethics in community with one another, and to actually talk about these questions. Sometimes I always joke with my students that I live at the intersection of the two things you're not supposed to talk about at holiday gatherings, which is the idea of religion and politics. But even questions like this, while they make us uncomfortable, they should. I think that shows the gravity of the question that we're considering and also how that is then laid out and how we administer justice in a society. So I really commend this book to listeners, as many uh, endorsers even said, while you may not agree with every single thing that Matt does in this book or says in this book, nevertheless, he's kind of pushing us deeper, challenging us to think more biblically and wisely about these questions of criminal justice reform. I always like to end on the same question. And obviously, throughout our conversation, you've referenced Augustine, you've referenced, I mean, there are so many footnotes, there's so much resourcing here, and I encourage listeners to check that stuff out. But one of the things I always do in my classes, especially in my Religion in the Public Square class, is encouraging folks to check out some primary sources. It's easy for us, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, I'm working through On the Incarnation right now, and his really uh, impressive kind of forward to that volume. He says there's a value in reading old books, going back to the primary sources that often they're clearer and more straightforward than some of their modern interpreters. They help us to see things clearer. So as you're working through this, you obviously go back to some of these primary sources, whether it's Augustine, whether it's Aquinas, even getting into some more contemporary sources like Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail and debates over just war and these kind of questions and justice today. What are some of those sources or resources that you'd recommend, obviously outside of your own work, that you would recommend listeners to pick up if they want to go a little bit deeper on some of the questions that we've discussed today or that you discuss in the book? 
Yeah, there's there's so many uh, good things to read. I cite Augustine more than I cite anything in the book, and there's so much that Augustine's written that's just so helpful. I, I really was benefited by his work, as I've mentioned, on Christian doctrine. His work on the morals of the Catholic Church is also very helpful. He has a number of what are numbered letters that you can find. Actually, you can find them online. Several of those numbered letters are key resources. I think I think it's letter 153 uh, is very good. You can find them in the footnotes to my book, but his numbered letters are very helpful. I would also highly recommend Paul Ramsey's book, Basic Christian Ethics. I feel like that should be required reading for every Christian. If we can, if we can impose required reading, like you have to read Paul Ramsey's Basic Christian Ethics. Again, not because you'll agree with everything, but so much good reflection that was was so helpful for me just on the concept of neighbor love. It's it's convicting, it's challenging, it will push you to be a different type of Christian. And it was a fantastic book on working through just many of the issues that I was wrestling with as I was writing this. I read it. I actually pulled it out again last night. I was on a Twitter discussion with somebody and they cited it and I went and pulled it off my shelf and I was like, oh, just I just read a few pages. I'm like, so good. So, such good stuff. I would also highly recommend William Stuntz's book, uh, The Collapse of American Criminal Justice, I think it's called. Stuntz was an evangelical Christian, a professor at Harvard Law School. He was in his day considered perhaps the greatest criminal law professor in the, in the nation. Arguably, some people said the best law professor full stop in the nation. He died an uh, untimely death due to cancer about 10 or 12 years ago. The book on the collapse of, of American criminal justice was published posthumously. I think it was finished up by his wife, if I recall correctly. It's very good. You're, you're listening to an evangelical Christian, an expert in his field, talk about, just from a legal perspective, the problems with the system. It's so good. You know, there's a lot of other works that are sort of out there as popular works that I that I think are probably not great, and I'm not here to pan other things. But his work is so good, and I would encourage I would encourage people to read it if you just want kind of a more trade book level approach to criminal justice. I think the book Locking Up Our Own by James Foreman, who is a professor at Yale Law School, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize maybe in 2017. Fantastic book. I, I say to people, if you can make it through the last chapter without crying, you know, I'll buy the book back from you. <laughs> I'm not making that offer to everybody who's uh, listening, but it's just a very moving book about the real world consequences to people which, of the criminal justice system, which I think is just good to remind us ourselves of. So that's, I think that's an excellent resource, a more modern resource. But I think those are some good sources to start with. I also, I have in my bibliography at the end of my book, a number of resources around lynching. And I include, there's a discussion about that in the book because that's an example in our country of the justice system gone awry in a serious way. I mean, I don't think we appreciate, I didn't, how off the rails the justice system was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, Francis Grimke, a, a committed Christian Presbyterian pastor in Washington, D.C. at, I think it's 15th Street Presbyterian Church, preached a summer sermon series in 1899 on uh, the evil of lynching because it was so prevalent. 
It's a powerful three-part sermon series, which again, you can find online if you Google it. It's in his collected works. I'd encourage people to read that. I reference it at, uh, several times in my book. And I think just understanding that history of how our justice system went awry when people were willing to take justice into their own hands and not let due process play itself out is a sobering reminder of the importance of a commitment to process as a means to accuracy. Well, for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources, including Matt's new book, uh, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. We'll make sure to link to all of those uh, resources here in the show notes. You can check them out wherever you listen to podcasts uh, down in the podcast notes, or you can listen and check that out on jasonthacker.com. But Matt, I really appreciate not only the work that you put into a volume like this, um, but I also appreciate the conversation. It's been a really thrilling conversation. I appreciate your friendship, and I'm just thankful to have you today here on the Digital Public Square. Well, it's been so great to catch up with you and to talk about something I care about a lot, and hopefully something that will be edifying to your listeners as we all strive for justice, but in hope of that day of final justice when God will set all wrongs right. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Matt and learn more about his new book from Crossway, Reforming Criminal Justice, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as stay up to date in the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.